that you're having a great and wonderful day. I want to welcome you to Daring Dialogues. If you're with me for the first time, I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. And tonight is our Finance Friday. Just a little bit about our schedule. On Mondays, we cover Monday Motivation. Um, We probably will be doing a show earlier in the day, so it will be pre-recorded for this coming Monday. Um, On Tuesdays, we are over at the Facebook page, Black Table Talk, hosting a live show there, as well as um, we will be doing it on YouTube next week. So on Tuesday, we will be on, again, Black Table Talk Facebook page and the YouTube page. So if you want to join us in either of those spaces, you can. On Wednesdays, we have our Relationship Wednesday, where we are focusing on uh, smart people right now. Thursdays is Thinking Thursday, uh, where we focus on philosophy and spirituality. And Fridays is our Finance Friday. And then we wrap up on the weekend with our Sunday Dialogue, which is held on the Life Nation Facebook page. So other than Saturday, we are pretty much broadcasting six days a week. Um, So if you are enjoying the content, I encourage you to share. If you are subscribed to the content, I encourage you to share and um, let other people know that they can subscribe and support the work that we do here every single day, six days out of the week. So tonight we are back and we're looking at Tiffany Aliche's book, The Budget Nista's book on Get Good With Money. We're jumping into chapter one and then we're going to hop over to The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. And uh, we're going to pick up that conversation on how did we get this wealth gap? How did we get this wealth gap? So I would wave at you all on IG, but for some reason, the wave mechanism, it works for some and it doesn't work for others. Um, But just know I'm waving at you. (laughs) So let's start out with get good with money. And I'll be reading till about 620 tonight. And then I'm going to open it up for conversation and we will close about 640, Before we begin, Get to Know Financial Wholeness, this is chapter one of Get Good With Money. Seven years after starting my business, I was making more money a month than I used to make in a year teaching preschool. I had more than enough to live on and was able to dig myself out of my financial hole. I paid off the $35,000 in credit card debt that I'd accumulated from my run-in with Jack the Thief and the overpriced business course and I also paid off my $52,000 in student loans. Once I was debt-free, I was able to save almost 70% of my income and paid cash for a car, used but certified and new to me, and a new house. The house was a foreclosure and therefore seriously discounted from what would have been the market price, but it was still a very big ticket item. I was even able to pay off the remaining $120,000 on my parents' mortgage. By most people's standards, I was rolling in it. But even though I was doing so well, I was more scared than I had ever been when I was a teacher and making so much less. In fact, 
despite making so much less then, I'd never been scared about handling my money at all when I was a teacher. So why was I so obsessed with having zero debt and stashing money away just in case? The short answer is that losing everything during the Great Recession had been traumatic and I was emotionally scarred. I was living in a state of financial fear. My own financial fears were obviously brought on by actual events, things that happened. And so I felt I had a rational reason for fearing financial downfall. But really, it was an irrational fear of them happening again. Many people, including my former self, understandably live in financial fear based solely on the possibility of financial disaster. If the global pandemic of 2020 has taught us all anything, it's that the unknown and unpredictable do happen. Jobs and income and stability can disappear due to something simply in the air. But when you are financially whole in the way I'll teach you to be, you won't have to live in fear of all that. You'll have a plan for each area of your finances so that they are constantly working on your behalf, regardless of where you currently are in life. Financial wholeness has nothing to do with the tax bracket you're in. Anyone, regardless of their income level or employment status, whether you're making minimum wage or you're a millionaire, can and should actively work toward becoming financially whole. Its principles are relevant and applicable to all. Financial wholeness doesn't stabilize just one aspect of your financial life, but all aspects of your financial life. This is why it can help you manage and sometimes even thrive during financially traumatic times. Lots of financial advisors preach the power of financial freedom or the idea that it's possible to have enough money to support your lifestyle without having to work anymore. Sounds good on paper, right? But my own experience shows loud and clear that this kind of freedom will not make you truly free. Despite my post-recession comeback, I was more on track financially as a teacher than I was as a burgeoning business owner, earning much more. Why? Because as a teacher, I had a savings strategy, a debt payoff plan in place, a good credit score, adequate insurance for where I was in life, and I knew where my assets would go if I died. I had an automated retirement account to which I contributed the maximum allowed each year. I had an emergency savings account and even had multiple streams of income from teaching, babysitting, and tutoring. When I was financially free, I had a large cash reserve, but I hadn't achieved many other critical financial pillars I needed to feel secure. I had never adjusted my insurance to cover my new way of life. I didn't have a clear retirement plan that reflected my standard of living either. I didn't have an updated estate plan or a way to grow and sustain wealth versus just saving money. And I still didn't have any place to go for professional financial advice. I was actually losing money because my fear kept me from investing in ways that could grow my wealth beyond my own earnings. Seriously, one financial planner I considered hired laughed at me for having a ton of money in the bank and hardly any in my retirement account. I was not at all a millionaire as a teacher, but I was maximizing my income and I had a clear plan in motion for each area of my finances. To repeat, I felt more secure making $39,000 a year teaching than I did as a business owner making more than $39,000 a month. Just goes to show that strong foundations can be built with much less than you think.
And that wealth is more than just money in the bank. Even though I haven't taught in classrooms in many years, I still think in terms of lesson plans and in this book, it's no different. There are 10 lessons you need to learn, 10 areas of your finances that need to be working in sync for you to get to financial wellness. When all 10 of these facets are in place, you'll have a strong financial foundation and that means it would take a lot to knock you down. Financial wholeness is when all aspects of your financial life are working together for your greatest good, your biggest benefit, and your richest life. We're going to take this a step at a time in the pages to come, but for now, here's the big picture. Here are the 10 steps. Step 1. Budget building. Learning how to create and semi-automate your transfers, a personal budget, and open the necessary checking or savings to support your budget. Step two, save like a squirrel. Calculate your savings goal number that's needed to meet at least three months of essential expenses for your household. Calculate how much you need to save in each category, such as emergency goals and investing. Learn how to prioritize and automate transfers for your savings accounts. Step three, dig out of debt. Get a clear picture of who and what you owe by writing down the components of your debt, i.e. amount owed, interest rate, due dates, etc. Then choose a debt repayment strategy and use your bank's online bill pay to automate your payoff plan. Step four, score high. Request your free FICO credit report and score to see where you stand. Make a list of the factors that may be impacting your score and come up with a game plan to increase it to 740 or higher. Step five, learn to earn. List all the ways you've contributed value where you are in the last few years. And if you're working, make a good argument for a raise. Uncover your side hustle potential by making a list of the tasks that you do at work, your education, and your current skill set. Develop an action plan that lists what you'll do next to increase your income. Six, invest like an insider. Identify your retirement wealth and goals. Create and implement your investment plans with the help of a certified financial planner. If you're working, your human resources representative, online tools, or even by yourself. Commit to consistent contributions toward investing, to learn to leave it alone, and to give it opportunity to grow. Seven, get good with insurance. Make sure you have proper insurance coverage. That means understanding and calculating your needs around health, life, disability, property, and casualty. Eight, grow rich-ish. Increase your net worth. Learn how to calculate your net worth, owning more than you owe, and how to achieve, increase, and maintain a positive net worth. Create a net worth goal and define actions you're going to take each month to achieve your goal. Nine, pick your money team, financial professionals. Find a reliable and trustworthy financial professional, certified financial planner, insurance broker, estate planning attorney, certified public accountant, etc., and identify accountability partners. 10. Leave a legacy. Estate planning. Create and implement a plan for what will happen to your estate, your cash, your real estate, your jewelry, any other assets after you pass. This is important no matter the size of your bank account and portfolio. Now, doesn't that all sound easy? 
Okay, maybe you're thinking it seems like a lot. But what if I told you these steps have been designed specifically to help you create the plan that you want? The first five steps actually cover the fundamentals. Some of you may already have these first five steps done, but if you have someone in your life that hasn't done these five steps, this is a this is going to be a great series that you can share and pass along with them um, to further encourage them to get started, right? These five fundamentals, the purpose is to help create financial stability. Think of these steps as the foundation. The trick is to get to a point that budgeting, saving, debt, credit, and earning becomes second nature so you can focus most of your energy on the next five. Now, with the group that I coach, I know some of the people that I coach already are into the next five, but we're still going to go through it um, step by step. Steps six through ten cover growing and protecting your wealth. They are presented in order to show you how to invest, how to align your insurance, how to grow your net worth, and seek professional help and protect your legacy. Do you realize that you've just been handed a roadmap that will lead you to the kind of life that will build and support your future? It's all here, complete with detailed directions. I will lead the whole way and we'll get you to financial wholeness together. I hope you're fired up to learn now that you see the scope of what we are going to cover. But I know one other important thing from my years as a teacher. Everyone learns best when their minds are open and ready to receive information. Or in the words of somebody who came up with the quote, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Which is why before you get started working through these steps, I want you to talk about the importance of checking in on your mindset around money. Consider the five exercises below as a way to do some unpacking of your current attitude towards money and the origins of this attitude. I'm not saying you have to go all deep into it, but believe me, some emotional exploration will be helpful as you take the 10 steps to stabilize your financial foundation. Let's get good with our mindset so we can get the most out of get good with money. Become a paper towel person. I was a clumsy child growing up and not a day went by that I didn't trip, break, slip on something. My go-to move was spilling, typically something that stained on the floor, carpet, or furniture. If it happened in front of my father, he would fuss a little, reminding me to be careful while also sharing the financial cost of my clumsiness in relation to our family's bills. If it happened in front of my mother, she would silently get a paper towel and hand it to me. Have you ever made a mistake and instead of immediately fixing the problem, you launch into an angry tirade? How could I have done this? I'm so upset. This is such and such's fault. We've all been there. But what I've learned from my mama is not to dwell on the mistake, but to quickly find the solution instead. Because you do know what happened after my father finished fussing, he would eventually hand me a paper towel. Keep this lesson in mind as you use this book working towards financial wellness. There's no reason to beat yourself up over spilled milk. Wipe it up and move on. Focus on the solution. Be a paper towel person. So when we come back, we're going to look at her um, five things around your mindset. 
and then I believe we'll be jumping into chapter two. So we're going to take our last few minutes here to hop back into The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy A. Brown. And remember, we have been talking about how did this generational wealth gap get so wide? Let's talk about it. A generation or two removed from slavery, few black Americans had the kind of money that of a John Rockefeller and the Great Depression only made their situation worse. In the 1930s, roughly 80% of black Americans were living in the South and their unemployment rates were much higher than those of white Americans. Nearly 70% of Atlanta's black residents then were unemployed in 1934 at least double the number of white Atlanteans without a job. One reason for this disparity is that during the Great Depression, when so many Americans were desperate for work, it was a regular practice for companies to replace black workers with white ones. In 1936, more than half of all Southern urban black families reported annual incomes of $750 or less compared with 12% of white families. Think about that. More than half of all families reported $750 a year as their annual income and only 12% of white families at the time. The median annual income for black families in Atlanta was only one third that of white families in Southern cities. While more than a quarter of white Americans earn more than $2,500, less than 2% of black Americans fell into that category at the time. Mired in poverty and unemployment, black Americans in general were beneficiaries of a policy that taxed only the wealthiest Americans, but that would soon change. When the United States entered World War II in 1941, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Congress passed another revenue act to fund the war effort almost doubling the number of Americans required to pay taxes. Two new laws in 1943 further expanded the reach of the federal income tax system. First, Congress passed what was called the Current Tax Payment Act, a bill requiring withholding, where taxes were taken out of employees' checks at the source. Still there, right? There had been no need for such a widely applicable system until the vast majority of workers became liable for taxes. Then, the Revenue Act of 1943 dropped exemptions to just $600 of income for single taxpayers and $1,200 for married taxpayers. In 1945, the median income for white families was just under $2,800. And for black families, it was roughly $1,500. Therefore, many black Americans, just like their white counterparts, became taxpayers for the first time as taxpayer rolls exploded from 7 million to more than 42 million between 1940 and 1945. After the war, the new taxation system stayed in place, creating an expanded income tax base. Federal revenue from individual income taxes increased exponentially from $400 million in 1934 to almost $30 billion by 1954. The flood of new revenue allowed the federal government to provide additional services. 
Returning service members could now use the GI benefits to attend college for free. Their families could become homeowners thanks to loans insured by the Federal Housing Administration. Between 1944 and 1971, federal spending for the GI Bill totaled more than $95 billion. But get this, even as Black Americans became drawn into this new tax system and they were paying into the system, they were unable to reap its benefits. Literally, taking the tax money of Black Americans to fund these bills that they were then denied access to. No other New Deal initiative had as great an impact on changing the country. As a GI Bill writes Ira Katznelson, Ruggles Professor of Political Science and History at Columbia University, says in When Affirmative Action Was Wiped, another book I have, Katznelson's work explains how the GI Bill left the responsibility for implementing its home ownership, small business, education benefits up to state and local governments, many of which were already upholding the Jim Crow system. On the federal level, the FHA engaged in redlining of neighborhoods where Black Americans lived, rendering homes there ineligible for the low interest rate 30-year FHA insured loans. At the same time, legal and de facto discrimination prevented Black Americans from buying homes in other places. Black veterans faced similar barriers at colleges and universities, few of which would enroll them. Black and white workers both paid the federal income tax that generated the revenue to finance all these benefits, but Black Americans were prevented from receiving them. Hello, reparations. They could only watch from the sidelines as their money helped to fund the creation of a robust white middle class, one that was almost exclusively just white. This was hardly the first time Black Americans were left out of a leap forward either. When the federal government, through the Homestead Act of 1872, made it possible to buy land cheaply, Black Americans were largely excluded. Well, right now there's another leap forward getting ready to happen under the guise of educational forgiveness and student loan forgiveness. And if you look at the policies surrounding student loan forgiveness, Black Americans are going to largely be left out of that as well. So something to be concerned about. Note the almost in referring to the new mostly white middle class. Government assistance helped increase the white home ownership rate throughout the middle of the century from 46% to in 1940 to 57% in 1950 to 64% in 1960. But even in the face of government opposition, it's estimated that Black Americans received only 2% of all federally insured loans issued between 1945 and 1959. Black Americans also managed to increase their rate of home ownership from 23% in 1940 to 34% in 1950 to 38% in 1960. Individual Black Americans have always found a way to navigate through a system not designed for our success. But it is tiring. Once I looked at the history of taxation in America, it became clear why so many tax policies have drastically different impacts on Black and white families. 
They were created during a time when black families paid into the system without having the same legal rights, the same legal rights to live, to work, to marry, to vote, or receive an education as their white peers. It was not until 1964 that the Civil Rights Act made it illegal to discriminate against black Americans in school and in the workplace. And it took another year for the Voting Rights Act to guarantee black Americans the right to vote. The right for men and women to marry regardless of race wasn't the law of the land until the Supreme Court decided Loving versus Virginia in 1967. And now the Texas Supreme Court is trying to get Loving versus Virginia overthrown. Just thought you should know that. The following year, Congress made it illegal to discriminate against black Americans in providing housing opportunities. The law told black Americans that we could go to college, apply for jobs, get married, and buy homes without being denied access solely because of our race. That's a little more than 50 years to take advantage of the same rights that had been granted to white Americans for more than 200 years. And now we have people that are gutting these and rolling these rights back, and they've only been in place for about 50 years. The civil rights revolution moved the needle, but the struggle continues. Race-based voting disenfranchisement is alive and well today. So is discrimination in housing and in the job market. But perhaps the most glaring sign that our country has yet to achieve racial equality is the wealth gap. As long as we've been measuring, white Americans have always had more wealth than black Americans. The black-white wealth gap couldn't even be discussed until December 6, 1865, when the 13th Amendment was ratified. Before that, enslaved black Americans were legally deemed property in this country. White-owned companies were accumulating wealth through insurance policies written on enslaved black people, and banks were using them as collateral for loans. Slavery created wealth for more than just slaveholders, and the North profited along with the South. As property, enslaved Blacks could not get educated. They could not get paid for their work. Property could not get married. Property could not own property. There can be no such thing as a black and white wealth gap when the only people the law was counting as people were white. Today, we can talk about the black-white wealth gap, but what we have to say isn't pretty. So we're going to stop there and let's have the conversation. <laughs> let's have the conversation. Exactly. That is what's going on now at these jobs, even on today. Um, I'll give you an example. As I was um, going on to some job market sites, um, I had put in some information and I was seeking some independent contracts and the AI, which is why we talk a lot here about the new gym code and how racism is now coded through algorithms. All of the algorithms kept giving me jobs for like McDonald's. I'm not joking. Um, Amazon packing boxes. And mind you, they ask you to put in your level of education, um, whether you have a degree or not, all this stuff. But all of the algorithms were sending me to 
low-wage jobs or service industry jobs, not even in my field that I actually selected. So I unsubscribed from all of these job sites because I realized that, again, it was just reiterating that racism is on autopilot now. It's not just the written things, it's the things that is coded into how a system is, uh, the operating system is set up. So the operating system is already set up to send black people to low wage, low earning jobs, even if you're job searching, even if you have a four year degree, even if you have a PhD, it's gonna keep on sending you these low wage, minimum wage service industry jobs that may not even fit your um, career. And I actually um, messaged a couple of the companies and I told them exactly what I'm telling you all. This, your AI needs to be adjusted because it continues to send me things that have nothing to do with what I'm actually qualified for. So that was my little object lesson to let me know that yes, this is still going on. It's just automated now. The discrimination is on autopilot. All right, let's see who we have here. Um, ben is gonna come in and talk to us for the next 10 minutes. Hello. Hello. Um, I was going to, uh, actually when you spoke on, on the uh, taxes and the serviceman being able to get the uh, GI Bill mm -hmm. loan and the housing and stuff like that, I was, I was actually, my intention was, but you, you went there, but my intention was to elaborate on the fact that the black GIs couldn't get that. Mm -hmm. You know, they were discriminated against from that. Yet they went over there, some died, mm -hmm. they fought for the country, but came back and it was like, oh no, this is not for you. But I think it's, it's I think it's folks. even, I think it's even more shocking because I don't think I realized that at the same time that black people were finally earning some income that they that they adjusted the tax bracket to pull most black people into paying taxes while at the same time refusing to give them access to services that their taxes were paying for yes and that's not even yes. a part of the reparations conversation like all these right. generations of black americans your family, my family, other people's family that was paying into the tax system and denied services. Like to me, that's a whole lawsuit in and of itself. <laughs> All by itself. Uh, government assistance. Yeah. Government assistance. They want to blame it on black folks, but actually it started way back then with white folks and black folks were denied. And so I think it's also disingenuous for white people to continue to say things like, well, if you just work harder, then you will have what we have. Like, no, that's not what it is. The government literally stole money from black people through taxes and helped your and helped you along. It gave you welfare or white fare, really. It gave you white fare while snatching money from people who were already behind in wealth. We're, we, we were already behind. And yeah. then on top of that, okay, you finally let us into the job market and then you start pulling taxes from the majority of black Americans 
And then on the other side of that, you basically stole new money and gave it to white people through governmental services. And we're going to say you gave it to white people through governmental services because at the time, black people were utterly denied. Mm-hmm. Now, let's bring that up to the day after <laughs> discussion we had last week with the $600 thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Same thing. Black folks have started their own businesses due to the pandemic. Yeah. Started their own businesses. Now, oh, we got to find a way to get more, get money from them, make sure they're paying their taxes to get money from them. Yeah. But, but now the lie that they're telling is, oh, it's to catch the white folks. That's uh, no. If you want to catch the white folks, close the loopholes. Yeah. That's yeah. It's plain and simple. It's just that simple. Close the loopholes. Because a lot of them are stealing money legally because of the loopholes. Close the loopholes. Make it illegal 100% and then go out. Well, yeah, you know, there was a recent report. It, it it hasn't been getting a whole lot of attention, but there was a recent report that had all of these different people from different um, walks of life and how they were sheltering their money. This was a recent report and they were like, this can't get out. Like there wasn't a whole lot of mainstream attention shown on it, but the report is out there and it talked about how they were sheltering their money. Yeah, we know that's the point of the loophole. Um, but it seems like some people can use the loophole a little bit more easier than others. I'll just say it that way. <laughs> uh, my my viewer on, I have a viewer on YouTube who said, don't take and don't take one. Don't, in other words, don't get a job and get in the door either because they will do everything to keep their foot on your neck while there. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have figured that out, which is why a lot of people are learning how to um, become entrepreneurs. And what we're talking about now is the fact that these new rules that are being proposed, again, is saying if you make $600, if you have $600, right and it's not and it's anything you're selling for profit so if you have a side hustle maybe you cut hair on the side or you bake cakes on the side or you hold garage sales and you sell things for a profit if you make more than six hundred dollars off of that they're gonna they want to they they're gonna 1099 you now people who are in who are in smaller businesses or independent contractors have already been doing this but it's going to spread that requirement across more avenues of people who haven't been doing that. And we know, as, as Ben just said, during the pandemic, a lot of people were getting their side hustle on because jobs were just gone because of the pandemic. Some businesses that have been in business for 30, 40, 50 years closed down and they're not coming back. People just retired from them. <laughs> And said, we're done. The pandemic has been the final, you know, knife in the back. We're done. So they had to, people had to say, man, I got to figure out what to do to, to get some income in, right? Because initially they weren't giving out stimulus checks. They weren't. Right. 
and they weren't doing it, you know, with parents, with children and all of that. So now that that has started, which that I think started in July, people still are waiting on those checks. Some people have never gotten the first one from July. So again, they can't rely on that, which means they're going to have to find ways to make a living. And so, yeah, people are getting creative in legal ways. And now they're like, ooh, I can breathe. I'm making some money on the side. <laughs> and the government is like, hold, 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 hold my beer. <laughs> oh, you... Oh, you, you survived that? You survived all the shutdowns and the, and the lockdowns and the, and the shortage of food? You survived that? Hold my bill. I got something else for you. Speaking of which, since we're on Finance Friday, I want to encourage you, if you can, if you can, this month, go and stock up on your food. Go stock up on your food again because apparently they're holding ships in rotation pattern out in the waters and the supply chain is intentionally being halted. Uh I got confirmation of it today. I went to go do my regular grocery shopping and the meat, at, the meat section was almost empty. I don't eat a lot of meat. I just eat chicken mainly, chicken and salmon. So the meat section was almost empty. And I went to the, to the grocery and I was like, hey, can you tell me, you know, if you all are going to have another supply in? Can I come back over the weekend? Can I come back Monday? And they were like, no. They called another store and the general manager spoke. And guess what he said? Listen closely, because nobody's really talking about this just yet. The general manager said, our warehouses are empty of food. Listen, our warehouses are empty of food. We're not talking about toys and shopping for the holidays. No. Scratch that plan. (laughs) Scratch that plan. Spend this month. Packing your refrigerator. He said, he said, our warehouses are empty. In other words, the place where we go to get the food to put in the grocery stores are empty. Right now. It's October, guys. Winter is coming. He said, the supplies are being cut off right now and we don't know when we are going to be able to get our supply that goes to the warehouse before it comes to the grocery store. These are the people who are in charge of food. This is what I heard today. Not, I'm not talking about I heard it from a a conspiracy theorist. I heard it from the general manager who's over the food. And I only heard it because I asked and they called the general manager who I got a chance to hear it from. And then I said, well, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) And he said, there's not much I can say except we don't have food in the warehouse. What we have on the shelves right now is what we have on the shelves. 
share this broadcast because people don't know this yet. I'm telling you, they don't have food in their warehouse. They only have what's on the shelves. And the grocery stores that are not yet at that point, they're probably another one to maybe two weeks away from that same statement. So what did I do today? I went to go stock up on water. I went to the grocery stores that still had some meat on the shelves. And as a matter of fact, I was getting ready to go to one store. And I know I went there last week and they didn't have chicken. I was getting ready to go that way. And the Lord said, go to Target. I said, Target? (laughs) I was like, I go to Target for earrings. (laughs) He said, go to Target. I'm like, but Target don't really have like a whole big food select. Go to Target. Okay. You think I'm going to argue with God? No. I drove my little, I turned around in the opposite direction, went to Target. Opened up the shelf. I'm going to put my picture up on social media. I, I took a picture. Because I know what the shelf's going to look like next week. There was plenty of chicken. The kind that I buy. With no antibiotics and hormones and all that stuff. I, normally I only buy like one bag. I bought every bag. That's what I did. I bought every bag. Because I don't know what's going to happen in the next one to two months with this country. Um, I really feel like part of that is there's a shutdown in a, in a sort of shutout coming. There's a, a shutdown and a shutout coming that really has to do with forcing people to their will. And some of y'all already know who I'm talking about. It's the people who don't want to do what, what the mandate is right now. And believe it or not, the majority of them is black Americans. It's about 70% of black Americans. That was the latest data that I saw. About 70% of black Americans have not done the mandate. But if you cut off food supplies and say, this is, this is a condition, then you'll get more people to do that mandate. If they can't get to food, unless they do the mandate. So, yeah, I just encourage you to get your house in order. Use this month. If you get paid bi-weekly, the next time you get paid, just stock up. If you get paid weekly, try to stock up something every week. And prepare. Make sure you prepare. So, we're waiting for um, Pastor Ben to come back in. Hopefully, he'll be able to get in. I might have to um, get him off the screen. It's not letting him come back in. Yeah, I guess this conversation is a little too hot for IG. (laughs) But, yeah. So, prepare. If you eat things like rice, potatoes, um, your dairy, get your, all of that in order. Breads, get it in order. Water, get it in order. Um, And try to get your, your kind of like your staple foods because nobody wants to be eating potato chips for 60 days. So 
uh, nutrition nutrition wise get your base products and stock up on your base products you have a if you have an extra refrigerator if you have a um what do you call it the storage refrigerators i forget what they call <laughs> it's, it's escaping my mind but stock up stock up stock up and I didn't even see your question there. But yeah, stock up on your basics. If, you, if you're if you a meat person, you might want to start weaning yourself off of how much meat you're eating right now. Just so that your body can cycle down. So if, you, if you're a meat person, you might want to start cutting back on the amounts of meat that you're eating every day. Because if there's a meat shortage, you don't want to be like your body going into super shutdown or shock from not getting the same amount. So think about that. But yeah, I I think it's not going to be pretty going into 2022. Um, They will tell you to go do your Christmas shopping right now, but really they need to be telling you to go do your food shopping right now. Because what good is toys, right? Pastor Ben, you there? I see you nodding your head, but I, I don't think it's allowing you to speak. Um, go do your do your food shopping. Because what good is toys, right? And you have no food. Believe black women. I believe the general manager. I don't think he had any reason to... You know, tell me that the warehouses were empty. I don't think there was anything, you know, behind that. But I did ask when would be their next shipment. And he said they don't know. He said they don't know because the warehouses are empty and the ships are doing rotations in the ocean. Okay. The United States Postal Service put out a a notice, I think, earlier this week or late last week about delays they said there's going to be delays and on top of that you're going to get your stuff slower (laughs) and on top of that they're going to double the cost of whatever you send who is that going to affect the most we're going to slow down your deliveries and we're going to double the cost of you to send anything so for those of you who are thinking, oh man, I can, I can, you know, maybe buy some some canned goods or I can buy some dry goods and send them to people who may not be able to get food in time or need food. They're going to slow down deliveries and they're going to double the price for you to send anything. Now couple that with a food shortage. That's coming while they're telling you to go do Christmas shopping. Yes, deep freezer, thank you. So just be aware. Um, Pastor Ben, I'm gonna try one more time to see if it'll allow you to come in. I know you had to, I know it bumped you off. Are you there? No, I'm here. All right, give me some closing, give me your closing thoughts because we're gonna close it up, wrap it up here in three minutes. I want to say this, always on this show, and many of us off this show and on other shows, keep warning people, 
We keep speaking about our government, what's tied to it. We keep speaking of things that's coming. But people keep saying, no, not America. Hmm. Well. They better wake up and understand who America really is. We're basically, <laughs> we're basically living in the den of Satan. Well, pretty they, much. They call it um, New Egypt, and some people call it New Babylon. And we talked about this again. We talked about the fact that in order to build uh, in Egypt, you had to you had to have some Hebrews to build in Egypt. Yep, you had to, and they knew that. That's why they went to Negro Land. <laughs> you, you, if you wanted to replicate, you had to get the people who knew how to build it. Uh huh. All through D.C., if you've ever been to D.C., all of those magnificent buildings. Those monumental buildings were built by the formerly enslaved. They didn't have that skill, but they knew where to get it from. And on that note, <laughs> we're going to end for tonight. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues. I've been your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I want to thank you for your time and attention. Again, we are going to do a pre-recorded show for Monday um, that will air probably earlier in the day. And then we'll be back on, um, YouTube on Tuesday and also our Facebook page, Black Table Talk for our Black Table Talk session. If you're with us for the first time, that's where we talk all things black. And right now on that show, we're talking about black women and black love. And we're talking about the history of, uh, the things that we went through as a people to love one another freely so it's it's going to be an interesting show um it's an interesting read that we're looking at in on these shows we try to get to the root of things um beyond what we what we have heard and seen from the surface we try to focus on readings that deal with the root causes and the root issues remember light is the most daring opposition to darkness so continue to go out and be what Be light. Thank you all so very much. Take care and have a wonderful weekend. God bless.